sweet. Will you guys do something really special with me real quick? And I know we just sat down, but in honor of God's word and our expectation for what we want the Holy Spirit to speak to each of our hearts tonight, would you guys just stand with me with an open heart real quick? And I'm going to read God's word from Luke chapter 19 before Luke comes and preaches. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethagy and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks of you, why are you untying it? You shall say, this is true. The Lord has a need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks around the road as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice, and they were praising God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You guys can have a seat. Well, um, everybody give it up for our band. They're just amazing. Happy birthday, Jordan. It's Jordan's birthday, everybody. So he's a big fan of hugs and, you know, whatever else you feel like doing. Like he's really physical touch is his thing. So um, let, me, uh, let me pray for us and then we will jump into everything that God has for us this evening. Well, God, thank you for this moment. God, I thank you for what you're going to do tonight. God, I pray that you would allow us to set free what is tying us down. God, that you would do something special that anyone that comes in here feeling weary, that they would be able to turn that over to you. Lord, do what only you can do in this place. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, in the 19th, or rather in the 16th century, Europe was actually in the middle of the Renaissance period of history, and it was during the Renaissance period of history that much of the architecture, paintings, and other pieces of art that we still celebrate today were being created. So you had things like the Statue of David, uh, the Sistine Chapel, the Mona Lisa, and the painting of the Last Supper, all being created by these legendary artists, guys like Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo. They were just crushing it in the 1500s, right? Like, what a time to be alive. You could hardly brush your teeth, but as long as you had a paintbrush, you could make a masterpiece that would make you famous. So that's kind of where we were at at this point in human history. But in the shuffle of all of these famous artists, I doubt that many of you have ever heard of a guy named Raffaello Sanzio da Urbino, and his friends just called him Raphael for obvious reasons, but 
he died very early on in his life. Otherwise, we would probably know him just as well as we know some of these other legendary artists. In fact, there's one article that I read that had this to say about him. Quote, Raphael was the supreme Renaissance painter, more versatile than Michelangelo and more prolific than their older contemporary Leonardo. So the point that I'm trying to make here is you just got to know that this Raphael guy, he was gifted. He was extraordinarily talented, so talented that this is telling us, hey, he was as great as some of the greatest of all time. But I want you to fast forward with me in history to the early 19th century. And in the early 19th century, the former Prime Minister George Hamilton Gordon came across a painting of the Virgin Mary that he believed was original work of art done by Raphael. And so he buys it, but his team, unfortunately for him, decided to investigate it after the purchase. And they came to the conclusion that this was not a Raphael painting necessarily. I mean, it might be, but if it was, it was probably a copy. They couldn't even verify that this was something that was a knockoff of what Raphael had done originally. And so as time goes on, they really think, well, there's nothing special about this painting. I mean, there's nothing of any worth to it. We thought it was done by someone incredible, but looks like it hasn't been. And so as that happens, they end up selling this painting for $25 in 1899. And I'm sure you're thinking, well, how much is $25 today if you're comparing it to 1899? And it's a little bit over $2,500, which is, you know, pretty steep for me and maybe for you. But Really, in the world of art, it's not all that much at all. And so fast forward with me one more time to the much more recent past. And in 2016, an art historian comes across this painting, and he knows that this is something that was done during the Renaissance period. He knows that this is done around the time of Raphael's life, even though he didn't live very long. And so he decides to have his own team investigate it, knowing full and well that there are much better methods today, that there are many advances technologically that we've had in history that will allow us to identify whether this is something that's original, compare it to other works of art that artists have done, and really examine, hey, what is the root of this? Is this someone's painting that's worth anything or not? And so after taking it down, cleaning it, examining it, his team decided that beyond a shadow of a doubt, this was not only not a copy of a random piece of art, this was an original work done by somebody, and they say that this is an original work done by Raphael. This is the real deal. And so you got to remember that this thing was sold for $25 in 1899, but today, if you would like to purchase it, it can be yours for a cool $26 million. Now, why share that story with you? Because most of you are unaware of the value of what God has given you. And if you're unaware of the value of what you have, then you will sell something priceless for pennies on the dollar compared to the glorious riches that God has promised you in Christ Jesus. We live in a covetous, narcissistic, comparison-obsessed culture. A lot of you walk around like your story is just a copy. 
A lot of you walk around and you look at what other people have and you think, man, it looks like they just have a better version of what I wish I had. I have a knockoff. I have something that I don't even really enjoy that much. What is going on here? But I want to let you in on something that you are uniquely fashioned to move God's kingdom forward. You have gifts, talents, and abilities that God has given you. But if your calling is to fly and you're focused on how well others swim, you're always going to see yourself as less than. That's not what you're called to do. You can wish that you had fins all you want, but you have wings. That's not something that is honoring to God. That doesn't bring glory to God. Now, on the flip side of that, and I think this is even more dangerous, some of us in the room, we don't look at what other people have and think, man, I wish that I had those gifts. I wish that I had those abilities. I wish that was my story. We look at what other people have, and we actually misinterpret the source of the value of what God has given us. So rather than looking at what God has given us and thinking, man, this is amazing, or thinking, oh my gosh, I wish I had the, uh, the same things that they had, we have it go to our head, and we think we're amazing, so we look at what we have and compare it to what other people have, and we go, thank God I'm not like those peasants. And so as we are looking at this, we have to understand that painting was worth infinitely more than it was originally valued at. Why? Because of whose the painting was, because of who created it. When you look at who created it, you can see its worth, and your gifts and abilities, your story is worth infinitely more than you can even fathom, because if you are in Christ, then your story belongs to a king written by the author of life, sealed by the Holy Spirit, and it has been entrusted to you, given to you for the purposes of glorifying God. I don't want you to be a poor steward of what God has paid an unspeakable price for. So I want to give us two statements as we move forward, and we're going to unpack these from the text, but I want to give you two statements to tuck away in your heart and your mind as we move forward, knowing that these are going to help us navigate where we're trying to get to go. And the first statement is this. You undervalue what God has given you when you don't believe God can do much with it. But you overvalue what God has given you when you believe that you can do more with it than what God can do with it. And so you keep it in your hands rather than surrendering it over to him. Now, as we're reading this text in Luke 19, 28 through 38, I want to bring the story to a focus. I want to narrow in on a story within a story, but you got to realize that I think it would be somewhat irresponsible if we didn't talk about the bigger picture, the greater story that's happening here. And in Luke 19, 28 through 38, what we see is the triumphal entry of Jesus back into Jerusalem, into the holy city. So you have Jesus, the son of David, riding into the city of David for the final time, knowing what is in store. His hour has come. He is just one week away from resurrection and only five from execution via crucifixion. But before entering Jerusalem, there's something necessary to Jesus. There's something that he needs. And it's something that you probably wouldn't expect. And you see it at the beginning of the text in the first four verses in Luke 19, 28 through 32. It says, and when he, he meaning Jesus, when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples 
saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt or a donkey tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. So as Jesus and his disciples are making their way towards Jerusalem, they think that they're just going along on their journey. They're not going to get stopped. But then Jesus says, hold up, Uh, there's something I need, and uh, it's a donkey. So here's the thing. I need two of you to go into this village nearby. I need you to get it, and I need you to bring it back here. And I'm sure the disciples are going, what in the heck? What what a random, is, is this guy crazy? I'm sure they're like trying not to make eye contact with Jesus. Who wants to do that? It's like when you're in school growing up and the teacher's randomly selecting students to like read or answer a question. You're like, if I don't make eye contact, you can't see me. And you're just like, Lord, please do not let it be me. You know, like, please don't let it happen. But the disciples can't do that because Jesus would be like, I heard that. Peter, you're up, bud. You know, like that, that's not something that's really in the cards for them. They can't do that. And it's interesting though, the scriptures don't tell us which two disciples are chosen to go and get this donkey. But I do wonder, what is the journey like for these two disciples, whomever they are, that are chosen to go and get the donkey as they're on their way to this village? I'm sure they're like, this is awful. I, I, like, wh- why? Really, Jesus? I mean, we've walked into the city a million times. Why can't we just walk again? It doesn't make any sense to me. And really, like, a donkey, that's what you want to ride in? Why not ride something sick, like a, like a liger or like a lion? Like, let's do something cool. I mean, at least a horse, but a donkey? Are you serious? And it is interesting that Jesus would choose a donkey, though. I think we just read that and kind of think, well, yeah, I mean, whatever. That's cool. That's what he does. But It's an interesting choice, and Jesus did it on purpose. You see, traditionally, you would think, well, royalty would probably ride a horse into Jerusalem. That just makes sense. But leaders and warriors were traditionally the ones that would ride a war horse or a stallion in charging for battle. It was something that was symbolic of power and strength to ride a horse. It was something that said, hey, I have the intent of conquering you as my enemy, but a donkey was entirely different. A donkey was actually just the opposite. Rather than riding a horse, which signified war and conquering, riding a donkey was symbolic of humility And peace. Jesus was fulfilling what Zechariah had written 500 years before Jesus about Jesus. You have to look at Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 10. The prophet says this Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. You see, it says Jesus is bringing salvation but it doesn't just say he's bringing salvation. It tells us how he's bringing salvation. And you got to understand that it's not just what you do that matters, but it's how you do it that matters. It says Jesus is bringing salvation humbly, riding on a donkey. He's bringing peace to the nations. Look at the language here. 
When you look at what Zechariah writes, it's very specific. He says, I will cut off the chariot. Chariots were used for war. He's saying there's no chariot needed because there is no war. Jesus isn't charging in ready to conquer the world here. That's not what is happening. It's saying, I will cut off the war horse. There's no need for war horses where there is no war. The battle bow shall be cut off. There's no need for weapons of war, yet that's not at the point in history we're at. It says he speaks peace to the nations. He brings diverse groups of people together under one name, under the name of Jesus, where every nation, tribe, and tongue can declare that he is Lord, and we're united under him. And then it says that his rule is from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And I love this. It's saying Jesus is a king who has no equal. There is no enemy that is a worthy opponent to how great and powerful he is. Jesus isn't riding into the city with something to prove. People that have something to prove are the ones that want to go in and conquer. Jesus doesn't have to do that. He doesn't ride into Jerusalem like a warlord who's on track to prepare some huge assault. No, he rides in as the prince of peace, prepared to sacrifice himself for you and for me. Riding a donkey was necessary to Jesus' mission to fulfill Zechariah, which brings me back to the question, why aren't the two disciples mentioned? I think that we have to ask that question as we move forward because any time that anything significant involving the disciples happens in the scriptures, they're mentioned, but not here. And honestly, this is probably a reflection by the author, by Luke, of how significant their assignment seemed probably felt like they were getting coffee for the boss. They probably hated the task. They probably didn't want to do this at all. They probably found it annoying, and you can probably relate. Have you ever felt like God is calling you to do something you don't want to do? Like he's putting you in a position to do something that you feel like is not significant at all? Like you could be doing so much more than being where you are or having the gifts that you have, like they could be utilized better? Like God isn't aware that he could be using your potential for something more? You ever felt that way? But here's the thing the disciples didn't understand, and here's something that we don't always understand, that the assignment was greater than their own aspirations. They were playing an integral part in bringing glory to God. If you undervalue what God has given you with what he has equipped you to do, with where he has you, listen, you're not likely to then all of a sudden in the future appreciate what God has given you and where he has you with the gifts that he has given you. He's not all of a sudden gonna be like, man, I bet they're gonna love this now. You're probably gonna feel the same way. You're always looking to the next thing. God can do more with what you have in this moment than you can even begin to comprehend. But how do you expect to see God move in your life when you don't even believe that he can do much with where you're at today? God is not only glorified in your obedience, he blesses your obedience. Psalm 128.1 says, blessed is everyone who walks in his ways. Now maybe you're in a position where you're thinking, I don't want to do this. Where I'm at, where God has me, I just, I know that I could do more. I know that there's more to life, that I could do so much more with the gifts that I've been given, that this isn't where I'm supposed to be. I need to be over there doing that thing that they're doing. But here's the thing. If you're too proud to be satisfied with what God has given you with where you're at, then you're probably avoiding opportunities to bring glory to God right now. I will forever rejoice that on Jesus' way to the cross, he didn't go, I'm so much better than this. This is terrible. My gifts are so much greater than this. 
In fact, in Philippians 2, 8 through 11, it says, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. How? Even death on a cross, meaning the most humiliating form of death, stripped naked and hung up for everybody to see, beaten. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." The two disciples were probably unaware of the magnitude of the task that they had been assigned. But can you imagine after the resurrection as they're reading the scriptures and they come to Zechariah 9 and they read that, that the Messiah is going to ride a colt, that they're going to ride a donkey, the foal of a donkey, into Jerusalem. I, I'm sure they were like, that, that, that was us. But me, you, we did that. that we, we did that. That's us in Zechariah. We We fulfilled that. We brought glory to God by being obedient in that moment. But you see, they couldn't do that if they had been disobedient there. You you get to tomorrow, right, and you think, man, I just, when are things going to get better? But you can't get to tomorrow and see the significance of what you're doing today unless you're being obedient now. Humble obedience in the tasks that God has given you, with the gifts that God has given you, in the place that God has positioned you, brings glory to God and blessing to you. And we're not talking about blessing based on a works-based faith. Oh, no. We're talking about blessing based by grace alone, through faith alone, on the foundation of Jesus Christ alone. We consider ourselves blessed to humbly serve in obedience because of the undeserved goodness that God has shown us in sending his son Jesus to die for you and for me. I don't know about you guys, but for me, I, there are just certain things in my life that I'm protective of, if I'm being totally honest with you. Like things that, you know, you don't really want other people to touch. Do you guys have those things? I mean, like, you're, you're all liars. I mean, everybody has those things, okay? Like, everybody's got those. And it's not that I don't trust other people with them. It's just, you know, that I don't trust them. And so, you know, it's... Don't, we don't need to push the envelope, right? Like, let's not test the waters of my sanity if we don't have to. And so, you know, like my iPad, my computer, things that have a lot of monetary value or things that I use a lot for my work, those are things that I'm like, hey, you know, hands off, love you, but hands off. And there's one item, though, in particular growing up that is just, it was the worst. It was terrible. I didn't want anyone to ever touch it, drive it, nothing. So in high school, in my junior year, my dad and I were looking for a vehicle to purchase for myself, and I don't know how I convinced him to do this, right? But I ended up convincing him that we should get this amazing deal on an all-black 2007 Cadillac CTS sport mode, navigation system, all that stuff, all the things teenage boys should not have on a car. I had them on my car, and it took a little convincing on my end, but the deal was crazy. It was used, but it was in great shape, and I got to let you know, I mean, I treated this thing like my baby. I mean, I took such good care of this thing. It was so clean all the time. I mean, the seats, you could have ate off the seats. Things were FDA approved. I mean, the whole thing was just money. Thing was amazing. And I'll never forget, there was one day where my dad comes into my room, and he's like, hey, man, what are you up to? I'm like, nothing. What's going on with you? How was your day? And he's like, well, you know, uh, actually, I had a pretty rough day. Uh, My truck just started acting up. I had to take it into the shop, and they said they're going to have to keep it for like a week. So 
next week, I'm going to have to take you to school and pick you up because, you know, I'm going to have to take your car uh, because mine's going to be in the shop. And I was like, oh, okay, okay, well, uh, pump the brakes. Like, let's, let's revisit that whole thing. Uh, what, what do you mean? Like, you can't, you can't walk or something? You know what I mean? And he's like, well, well work's a 45-minute drive. And I was like, oh, well, you better get going. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, it's, that's good exercise. Like, I mean, it can't be my car. I mean, there's got scooters, there's like mopeds, I, like something cheap now. And I did not want to hand my car over to him. This guy, my father, I did not want to do that at all. But there came a point where my father, my dad, came in and he laid down the law. You ever been there? I mean, amen, if we've been there. He came in and he goes, okay, uh, here's the thing. I came in um, asking you. Now i got to tell you something. So here's what I'm going to tell you. Uh, Luke, I need you to know that your car is really my car because I paid for it. So there's that. But here's the thing, I love that you love it. I love that you like it. I love that you take good care of it. That's honoring, that blesses me. But here's the deal, I gotta get to work. I'm gonna get to work. And I could ask your brother if I could borrow his car, but you gotta understand something. I'm getting to work and I'd like you to be the one that helps me do it. Now I tell you that because in Luke 19.33 we see a strikingly similar situation. The disciples reach their destination. They begin untying the donkey, and it says that as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? In ancient Israel, if someone's untying your donkey, it's not like someone saying, hey, man, I'm going to borrow your lawnmower. No, it's like they're stealing your vehicle. you got to understand, when someone is untying your donkey, that is a massive asset to the family portfolio. You might as well come take my iPad right now and say, have a good time doing the rest of this. It was used, donkeys were used to grind large quantities of grain. They were used for plowing if you couldn't afford an ox. They were used for transportation. They were a work animal, and they were huge for the family portfolio. So when these guys come out and they say, hey, why are you untying our colt? The disciples are like, oh my God, well, we got to say what Jesus said. I, I am really hoping this works out here. And so they say the only thing they know what to say. They're like, the, the Lord has need of it. We didn't do this. He did it. The owners have a decision to make, right? Surrender what they've been given into the hands of the Lord for his glory or hold on to it because they're not sure what their life would look like without it. They need it for them, not for God. God can go ask somebody else for their donkey. They're not going to give theirs over. I mean, there's plenty of donkeys in Israel. You can't take mine. You can go take somebody else's. I don't want to surrender this over to you. And we know now, you know, Jesus knows that when he tells the disciples to tell the owners that the Lord has need of this donkey, Jesus knows that they're going to allow it to go back with them to bring it to him. He knows that. But I don't want it to be lost on us that even though that's the case, here's the other case. If the owners would have said no, if they'd have said go find another donkey, that would have happened. You better believe that Jesus was going to be fulfilling the prophecy that Zechariah had written 500 years before Jesus about Jesus, whether the owners allowed it to be untied or not. And so even in that moment, they have this option, and we have an option Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem in peaceful victory. And I need you to know tonight that God is going to succeed in his mission. He is going to succeed with or without you. 
You can either join the crew carrying the message of Christ to the ends of the earth, or you can be one of those people that will jump ship. They'll jump overboard because they get to a point where they go, okay, I didn't realize that Jesus was going to ask this much of me. This is more than I anticipated. I'm jumping off right now while I can. Everyone in here is like the owners of the donkey, except rather than a donkey, you have other things in your life that are keeping you tied down, things that are holding you back from living a life on mission for the purposes of God. It is no mistake that in the scripture, we see the words tie or untie five times. The shortened version here is this goes, you will find the colt tied untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, tell them the Lord has need of it. And as the disciples are untying it, the owners ask, why are you untying the colt? And the disciples go, the Lord has need of it. Can I tell you something tonight? There is a warrant out for the weary. God wants you for the purposes of God. You are wanted tonight, and if you are sitting in here and you're going, well, there's no way that I can be used for the purpose of God to bring glory to God, then you have something completely different coming to you because I'm letting you know that weary hearts are the breeding grounds of glory. When you look at the definition of weary, it means that you are physically or mentally exhausted, but it also means that you can be hesitant or reluctant. The owners of this donkey are weary of surrendering it over to the Lord. So my question for you tonight is, what is your donkey? What is it in your life that you feel like the Lord whispers, let me use that? The Lord has need of that. What do you need to let go of in your life for the glory of God? See, some of you feel tied down by insecurity. You don't know what people will think of you if you do that thing that God is calling you to do. Others of you are tied down by anxiety. You feel like God's asking you to do something uncomfortable, but God often uses our discomfort to disrupt the plans of the enemy. Some of you find yourselves in here and you're tied down by deep pain in your life. But if you just surrender that over into the Lord's hands, it will propel you into a position where you are not only doing what you're called to do, but you are reaching who he has called you to reach. Some of you feel tied down by frustration, but I want to let you know for a lot of you that frustration is self-inflicted. You see, a lot of you, you're here and you're frustrated because you're going, there's got to be more to life. There's got to be more with these gifts that God has given me. I don't understand. I just feel like I could be doing more and there is more. And you're right. You're right. But not if it's in your hands. It has to be surrendered into God's hands. Some of you in here have a Moses complex. I love this as Moses is going into this conversation with God at the burning bush and God says, hey, Moses, I want you to know that I need you to go to Egypt. I want you to be the mouthpiece of what I am trying to do through a people that I want to bring out of slavery, out of captivity, and lead them into freedom, into the promised land. And Moses goes, God, I have a speech impediment. I don't talk too good, right? And I love that God responds in a way that we don't typically think of God responding because we have a lot of people that tell us what we want to hear. God doesn't say, it's okay, Moses. You know what? You're right. You're amazing. You're the best thing ever. You don't have a speech impediment. God doesn't beat around the bush there. God says, Moses, I know you have a speech impediment. I made you. I created you. 
But what you're missing, Moses, is that if you surrender a speech impediment over into my hands, then by my power, what used to be a speech impediment will now be an eloquent megaphone of glory, freedom, and grace for the people of God. That's what you're failing to understand. So for many of you in here tonight, the very thing the very thing that you feel like keeps you from being able, from being able to move forward into the purposes of God for the glory of God, that is the exact thing that God is calling you to surrender over to him to be used for God's glory and for your good. So in BUDS, which is the training that Navy SEALs go through, there's a second phase and it's called drown proofing, which is probably about as fun as it sounds. And in a lot of these tests, your hands and your feet are tied, so uh, they just get progressively worse and worse. But like in one, your hands and feet are tied, and you have to bob up and down in water. You have to exhale the air out of your lungs so you can go to the bottom and then push back up to breathe for 20 minutes. There's another one where you have to have your hands and feet tied, and you have to swim lengths of an Olympic-sized swimming pool, which I didn't even know was humanly possible, but it is. It's called the dolphin swim. And then you get into the worst things. You get into a specific test where they'll throw you into the water with all your gear on. And you have to know your gear extraordinarily well because someone will jump in with you and they'll try to take your mask off. They'll move your gear around. They'll mess with your breathing apparatus. And it's supposed to simulate like you're being tossed around by a wave. And you have to be able to make sure that your gear's all in the right place so that you'll live. And then probably the worst one for us claustrophobic people in here is they'll have one where the idea is you can't resurface and your mask is filling up with water. You can't resurface to let the water out because the enemy is above you, and so you have to remain undetected. And the way that you can swim in clarity isn't with a full mask, so you have to open up your nasal passages, let the water pass through your mask, up your nose, down into your stomach, and you can continually move forward in clarity without being detected by the enemy. Now, what's the key to these tests? Well, I don't know through personal experience, thank you God, but I can tell you what the instructors say. The instructors preach trust, that students have to rest in the peace of knowing that they can trust in their training, because when panic sets in, you lose. Panic overrides thought. You will drown. You will suffocate unless you surrender to the instruction of the instructor. It allows you to swim in the true freedom that is only known through surrender. If you do not surrender your gifts, talents, and abilities, your story to God, you will feel like you're suffocating. There are things that you need to surrender to the Lord for your good and his glory because they are keeping you tied down and are suppressing the unspeakable joy and the glorious riches that have been promised to you in Christ Jesus. Don't hold on to what God has given you because you don't think that God can do much with it and don't hold on to what God has given you because you feel like it's better off in your hands than in God's hands. It's not. Surrender what you have known to be true into the hands of the instructor so that you can walk in true freedom knowing that he is faithful. The last thing I want to point out to you here is in verse 30. And some of you may be thinking, oh, he, he glanced over this. Jesus says that the donkey has never been sat on. Why is that important? Well, commentators have a lot of different opinions on what that could mean, but I'll tell you what I think it means. I think it paints a beautiful picture for us 
that when we have surrendered our lives over to Jesus, he has full authority. No one has ever been in this position. No one will ever be able to take this position away. He has the full authority. He is in the driver's seat of our lives. Our lives are his, and we can trust him with that. And some of you in here might be thinking, well, why, can, why do you say that, Luke? Why do you say that I can trust him like it's that easy? And I'll tell you, it's because Jesus rode that donkey into Jerusalem for a specific purpose. That donkey played a role in glorifying God by bringing him into the city one last time before he willingly went to the cross and laid down his life so that you could have life in him. Sometimes you may feel like Jesus is asking too much of you, like he is pushing you into some uncomfortable situations, but when you surrender your life to Jesus, you feel the freedom of a life that has been liberated from the suffocation of sin that has kept you tied down. The last few verses in the scripture here says, in verses 35 through 38, and they brought the donkey to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I have no idea, no idea what you need to untie in your life, but I do know that it's very difficult to feel the fullness of a relationship with Christ united to him unless you untie the difficulties, gifts, and sufferings of your story for the glory of God. Weary hearts in the hands of God begin to worship, singing, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I don't want you to sell yourself short on what God has paid so much for. Your story matters to God tonight. It matters. It is woven into the fabric of God's people that make up the story, the very fibers of the cloth that clothe Jesus' crucified body soaked in his blood. Sometimes you have to untie what the Lord needs to use so that you can be fully united to the mission that Jesus has appointed you to carry out on behalf of heaven. And so tonight, as we begin to jump back into worship, I want to challenge you. What is your donkey? What is it that you need to surrender over to the Lord for his glory? And maybe some of you know exactly what that is. Maybe others of you are realizing, I'm not in the right position. I have been thinking too much about where I am in retrospect to where other people have been, looking forward to what other people are doing, and I'm just not comfortable with where I'm at. There's so much more. I don't know where you're at tonight. I don't know what you need to untie, but I want you to identify what that is, and I wanna pray that we can just let that go for the glory of God tonight, that we could be comfortable with who we are and who we aren't, that God has created us uniquely to move God's kingdom forward. And so if you would, pray with me. God, thank you for who you are, for what you're doing, for what you've done. God, I thank you. I thank you for weary hearts tonight. God, sometimes we have to get to a place where we feel weary so that we can get to this moment where we can identify what it is 
that you want. God, speak to us. What do you need from us? What are you whispering to us? I have need of that. The Lord has need of that. God, I pray that you would give us the courage and the boldness to untie whatever that is. That we would surrender that position of authority, that we would say, hey, I've been the one that has been trying to sit on this donkey. I've been the one that's been trying to ride this thing, that's been trying to use this thing. I feel like it's been better off in my hands. I haven't been trusting you that you can do something amazing with this. God, I am surrendering it to you, Jesus. I'm saying that you have full authority in my life, that I trust you, God, that I know you died on the cross for me. And because you did that for me, I can trust you to take whatever it is that is holding me captive tonight and for you to use it not only for my good, but more importantly, to fulfill your chief goal, to show your glory through the nations. God, in my own community, God, I pray that you would do that right now. Give us that opportunity. Give us the courage, the boldness, and the faith. We ask it, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.